You got to know the field, the weather, the conditions, your adversary's traits. You have to know the risk assumption calculus. And we make a, a point of emphasizing, you know, what Bill Belichick does with this and in terms of adapting his game plan every game to what he's facing. So I feel that's what you have to do in the operating room for this problem. Welcome to the Cold Steel Surgical Podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. We've had the absolute privilege of chatting with some amazing Canadian as well as international guests over the past year. While the topics have been broad in range, whether clinical, social, or political, our aims for the podcast continue to remain the same. We hope to inspire discussion, creativity, scholarly research, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy our second season as we continue to highlight some incredible guests, deliver detailed masterclass sessions on a myriad of clinical topics, and introduce some fresh new features such as debate and companion formats. We hope you relish the podcast as much as we do. We were lucky enough to have Dr. Charles Vollmer join us once again on the podcast. Dr. Vollmer is a pancreas surgeon at the University of Pennsylvania and a previous guest on the show. This week, Dr. Vollmer gave us a masterclass on pancreatic fistulas, starting from how to define them, how to predict them, how to prevent them, and ultimately how to treat them. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the resources and materials that Dr. Vollmer talks about on the show. Welcome back once again, Chuck. Well, thanks, uh, Chad and Amir, for uh, the opportunity to join Cold Steel once again. I'm looking forward to the commemorative jacket, uh, like they get on the Saturday Night Live Five Timers Club. Uh, but uh, I'll try to distill my uh, career's research concentration from, from roughly about 25 years uh, down to about an hour or so, if that's okay by you. Oh uh, no, we can't. We can't thank you enough. We, again, we as always, we know how busy you are, and uh, and th- this is a real treat and a real gift to all the listeners. I I, I want to start by asking maybe a semi personal question. Maybe it's a little bit odd, but I want to ask wh- what drives you to to study this. Like like why are you into pancreatic fistulas so so hard and and truly all in? Well, uh, good question. I mean, this has developed over time, and it certainly wasn't the uh, thing that I was thinking about when I started my career, first and foremost. But, uh, you know, you sort of get into a lane over time, and it takes you a place. But uh, truly, this is the big one. Um, It's a hackneyed phrase, but authentic. Uh, When people refer to pancreatic fistula as the Achilles heel of this opera of pancreatic duodenectomy, um, it truly drives the vast majority of morbidity uh, in the operation. And uh, some of our earlier work on um, why people die from the operation uh, showed that uh, fistula accounts for a full one-third of the deaths from the operation. So if you're invested in doing this, uh, you want to improve. Uh, and the, you've got to attack the big things um, uh, to make that improvement happen rather than the low-lying fruit. I'll take you back to my early experience as a medical student. It was very uh, formative for me. 
um, when I was a third, fourth year student doing rounds on my surgery rotation. And of course, I was going to be a surgeon and I, I was really into it. But um, this is in the early 1990s. And uh, I was charged with doing rounds on the patients early and getting back to the team. And we would start in the ICU. And, you know, back then it seemed like it was the killing fields. I mean, I, that's a very crude term to say, but we'd go in and watch these patients with um, humors falling out everywhere from their abdomen, uh, all sorts of bags and drains and colors and uh, really sick people. It was very harrowing. Um, you know, uh, you can't improve that operation without impacting that particular problem. And, and that really imprinted on me at that point in time. I actually feel now it's the cornerstone to good results in this operation. And that's why um, I've dedicated so much uh, effort into it. Dr. Vollmer, can you outline to us, um, you know, through your research and, and all your studying and thinking about this topic, can you outline for us what the historical arc is on the work on pancreatic fistula? Like what, what has been done in the past to get us to this point? Yeah, thanks a lot. Um, it goes way back to the start with Whipple's first case. And not many people know this. Uh, you have to read John Howard's uh, recounting of Whipple's career to, to get this detail. But um, there's a guy called Hap Mullins who was uh, Whipple's uh, surgical uh, resident at the time. And back then he was doing lab work on the concept of putting the pancreas to the jejunum. Uh, so he was very invested in his um, inquiry period into figuring that out. And he was um, uh, one of the first people to, to operate with Whipple on those early operations. The first uh, procedure on an ampullary tumor, uh, they tried to put the pancreas back to the uh, uh, duodenum and uh, it broke down within 30 hours. Uh, the patient died. The first case died within 30 hours and they did an autopsy of that and uh, realized that the anastomosis had completely disintegrated. And the reason why is that they used cat gut uh, to uh, put it back together and it basically didn't hold. Um, this led them uh, in the ensuing cases to do duct obstruction uh, thereafter. Uh, you have to understand he did about 10 cases before he ultimately got to the uh, first or uh, one stage procedure. But in the early days, it was felt that uh, to obstruct the duct and live with the uh, exocrine and endocrine, endocrine insufficiency was better than having a dead patient. Um, so, you know, that's sort of the, the start. And then you could fast forward to about the 1950s uh, when Cattell and Warren described the concept of a ductomucosa anastomosis. Um, in the 1960s, John Howard, you know, the, the dean of pancreatic surgery, um, reported in the last chapter in his seminal book, Diseases of the Pancreas, is a uh, chapter on pancreatic fistula. And it's mostly centered on um, uh, pancreatitis pseudocysts and fistulas from um, cases of pancreatitis operations. But there's a mention of three or four post-operative uh, pancreatitis um, uh, fistulas in that uh, situation. Um, I guess you could sort of go ahead to the uh, time frame when I was describing before the 1990s uh, uh, when 
Uh, at that point, uh, these fistulas are becoming more evident. They were probably fueled by the realization that the Whipple could be done for more indications than just cancer. Uh, so people were getting a little bit more adventurous and therefore venturing in on more risky glands, so to speak. And and the leaks were happening and, and they were uh, breaking down and, and causing people to be very sick. Uh, there came a point when there were you know, people were starting to describe this with definitions, and it came to light that there were numerous definitions. In fact, Claudio Bassi had a very famous paper that said there were 26 individual definitions of pancreatic fistula in the literature at that point. And mostly these were based on the local shop's conception of what they thought a fistula was, you know, varying uh, amylase content uh, versus radiographic findings versus length of time that it was studied versus volume coming out. Uh, so it was a real mismatch. I think one of the, the important concepts was that uh, brought up by Andy Lowy um, uh, was that of the clinical condition concept. And that was that a leak of the pancreas um, uh, was really uh, most important when it uh, brought the patient down in some way, shape, or form. Um, so the clinical severity idea came into play. And that's really where the ISGPS, uh, International Study Group of Pancreatic Surgeons, um, got the idea to validate it. They wanted to uh, uh, really synthesize this down to one defined um, idea of what it was that everyone could speak on the same language with. And also, uh, they tiered it in a uh, clinical impact process. Beyond that, and this is really where my career started, uh, is right at the outset of that definition. And, and then we move into the era of risk score development. Um, and then now, um, since scores have come out, uh, uh, what I'm going to talk to you a lot about today is the pancreas fistula study group contributions, a, a group that we've brought together uh, from around the world. So as I, as I, talk to you about more of this later on, there are two things I'm going to refer to going forward. Uh, one is this pancreas fistula study group, which refers to 18 international institutions, about uh, uh, over 8,000 Whipples at this point, and uh, over 75 surgeons contributing from all around the world, uh, which we've um, developed numerous papers um, and analyses uh, from. And it's really a, a living, uh, breathing um, Co coalition for about uh, 20 years now. And then the second thing I'm going to refer to at times is something called what I'll call the master's survey, which is a just uh, uh, published uh, paper in the journal surgery called decision points in pancreatic duodenectomy invited expert opinion on pancreatic fistula. Um, this uh, uh, recounts the opinions and practices and habits of 60 uh, truly international uh, experts on pancreas surgery, um, where we asked them about 110 questions about their practice, and we were able to um, identify best performers uh, and what their habits were. So I'll drop in at times uh, uh, evidence from these uh, various um, important studies that we have. You know, Chuck, you, you you listed so many great sources of of knowledge and information in that in that arc. Um, you know, it's sitting here in my office on on my on my shelf. One of the books that I have, is, of course, is John Howard's Life and Times of Alan Oldfelder Whipple, two volume set, and we'll we'll link that in the show notes for anyone who's interested. It's a long read, but 
it's a remarkable life that that he led and and uh, it touches on a lot of what you've you've mentioned. The, the other thing I would say is that the the international group, the ISGPS that that you mentioned, and we'll talk about more, is really sort of must reads. Uh, no matter what they put out, no matter what that that group comments on, I, I think it's a must read for anyone that thinks about the pancreas. And I don't necessarily um, believe that's just pancreas surgeons that do elective work like you and I do, or pancreatitis acute care surgeons, for example. It also includes trauma surgeons that have to think about, you know, pancreatic injuries and subsequent fistulae. So it really is high, high yield reading. I, I wanted to continue to go down that, that path then and, and ask you very simply, at least at 30,000 feet, two questions. How do you define a pancreatic fistula? And then take us through the ISGPS um, uh, grading system. And in particular, I'd love if you'd comment on the utility or lack thereof of of grade A fistulas as they're currently defined. Sure, um, you brought up the ISGPS uh, definition. So I'm gonna say at the outset here, the best um, constructed and conceived of all those definitions is the original one, which is the pancreatic fistula uh, study, um, uh, famously authored by Claudio Bassi. It is in fact the most uh, cited uh, work in pancreatic surgery. I think it's been cited over 3,000 times uh, since about 2005 when it came out. So um, it's really important. Uh, I conceptualize uh, fistula uh, in this way. I, I think of it as a continuum um, of the condition of a breakdown of the pipes, uh, so to speak, or an asthmatic breakdown, if, you know, for our terms, but conceptually a, a pipe uh, disruption. Um, you have to really understand the importance that there's uh, in in this definition as compared to the other ISGPS definitions, there's an actual biochemical parameter that defines it. And that is the amylase content of the um, juice that's uh, produced by the pancreas. Um, the, the other uh, definitions don't have that sort of uh, linchpin to it. Um, uh, so amylase is the evidence of a physiologic process that is associated with the problem. Otherwise, the definition is dependent on severity. And that is really, this is a bit controversial, but uh, the um, construct is that it's graded on um, as judged by what the surgeon does. Um, so there's a problem with that because there's variability on how surgeons approach um, uh, the care of the patient, right? And some are aggressive and some are, are less aggressive with their um, uh, interventions. But basically, the grading tier scale has to do with resource utilization. So it starts with grade A. And at the outset, this was felt to be important. I think more about uh, define, uh, helping the definition come along. But um, we were the first in, in our validation study of this uh, paper to show that this grade A um, transient biochemical leak kind of zone is really worthless. Um, it's, it's not impactful is what I should say. Uh, there, are, in fact, are no predictors identified for it. It probably... Um, uh, represents some minor leakage of side branches of when you cut through the gland, um, that it sort of um, 
uh, drips off and can be found uh, as a low-level uh, amylase content in the uh, drain. More important, though, is what we call clinically relevant fistulas, and that's where we step up into grade B and C. So grade B uh, represents 80% of all your um, clinically relevant fistulas. So this is, you know, the, the bulk of it. This is predicated on medications or interventions. And we've actually subsequently subclassified this into three zones based on the degree of those interventions. And it's also associated with prolonged drainage. And this is a little bit arbitrary, 21 days, but people would really understand that, you know, you really shouldn't have a drain in your side for, for three weeks. Um, so uh, it could be, you could quibble over why that number, but basically that's sort of your cutoff. Uh, if you have to keep uh, drainage to uh, prevent from sepsis from happening, then uh, that would get you into a, um, a clinically relevant uh, place. Uh, for someone to go home with a drain in their side is impactful to them. So it counts. And then you can step it up to grade C, which is organ failure. And this is not necessarily ICU use. Uh, you know, some could, could say that that's what the definition says, but it's really when you have an organ failure because people could decide to put someone in an ICU um, very arbitrarily. So um, it's organ failure and then other uh, consequences of that, which um, ramp up to reoperation, uh, full full on sepsis, uh, and uh, death. Uh, a death from a pancreatic fistula is grade C. Um, grade C accounts for two percent of all the Whipples that you will do. So a little bit, but a real number, and they are memorable for you. Um, together, if you want to put the CR pop rates um, uh, together. Uh, it's delineated at a 13 to 15% rate um, across the world, uh, pretty uh, uniformly over time. Uh, that's the number uh, that uh, happens after this operation. So 13 to 15% of your patients will suffer this problem. So to, to bring this all together, I, I have a conceptual analogy. It revolves around uh, sort of the degrees of a leak and would look like this. It's sort of a spectrum of um, sweat uh, off the gland, um, so that would be a grade A. Um, a leaky faucet, which would be uh, grade B. Uh, and then finally, a sewer burst or a full dehiscence, uh, which would uh, essentially lead to a grade C with its septic um, uh, predilocation. Uh, finally, if you want to really use the word fistula properly, it's an epithelialized connection. Um, I would save this term more for the longer term condition. If you have uh, juice coming out of the side of the body through a long term fistula, um, epithelialized tract, uh, I think that's a better word for that rather than um, the initial leak kind of process. Um, Whatever you want to say about this kind of stuff, the standardized definition has finally allowed for an objective uh, comparisons to be made, uh, both for research, for performance, for uh, assessment of uh, interventions, whatever you want to say. We now have something that is pretty well um, socked in around the world uh, and understood. It's a remarkable achievement, and uh, all the residents now, of course, uh, learn this and, and hear about this uh, as we go through our HPV rotations. But uh, it's it's remarkable to think about how this definition 
came about um, and what it entails. Can you talk to us a little bit about, uh, no, you know, now that we have a definition, can, can we actually now predict who's going to get a, a pancreatic fistula to the degree that, you know, we can do that? And, and talk to us a little bit about some of the many risk scores that are available for predicting whether uh, a page, an individual patient is going to get a pancreatic fistula. Sure. Uh, you know, it seems we live in an actuarial world uh, now. We're consumed with the concept of risk both uh, predicting and managing it, particularly in our field and as surgeons. Uh, actuarial science has crept into medicine over the last two decades. And now risk scores uh, apparently are a dime a dozen in the academic literature. Um, they're not that hard to make in the big picture. Um, so you see them um, uh, popping up everywhere for everything in surgery. But uh, truly, uh, very few have manifest tangible value. So a lot of people can make a score, but then what do we do with it? And uh, is it actually practically applied? And that's where surgeons have fallen down because we haven't taken it to the next level of uh, providing value. With the ISGPS definition uh, being, defi- uh, being uh, developed, uh, we attacked uh, this concept over a decade ago by first validating that construct uh, in an annals of surgery paper and then searching for factors associated with it. And uh, great credit has to go to a young medical student at Harvard uh, when I was there uh, named Wande Pratt, who um, really attacked this uh, problem for us. Um, you have to start with the realization that risk for pancreatic fistula is multifaceted. And uh, many people are very uh, stuck on the concept that it's just about one thing, and that's the the soft gland. But really, we've identified that uh, the median number of factors that people think or consider um, is three. Um, And, you know, there's many more than just three, but that's sort of what people around the world think, that it is a multifaceted approach. Um, But truly... um, that risk is dominated by the inherent glandular features. Uh, these are the things that uh, make it uh, not fun to mess with the pancreas, as the old adage goes. Um, I'm very strong on the relative uselessness of preoperative prediction. Um, a lot of the scores uh, proposed in the literature, uh, very few have gotten through uh, to publication, but a lot of people have proposed preoperative uh risk scores. These factors that are identified are largely not modifiable and therefore have no reasonable pre-op interventions against them. Um, I think it only adds um, uh, basically to the informed consent process to know about pre-operative risk. But, you know, you have to have to take that to a limit because the more of this you get into, you can scare patients off um, uh, by telling them how um, bad things could get. Um, I think it rarely disqualifies people from an operation. I've never not done an operation that was necessary for other reasons out of fear of a leak happening. I think many people would say the same. Um, and then I, I'd say this, you know, prediction is like the weather forecast or, or today using Google Maps function. Um, truly unforeseen and actual events change and alter the course of those predictions. I can give you some examples. I mean, the temporal uh, forecast of um, the weather 
if you go on your app and you take it out uh, 14 days, it's going to tell you uh, basically that it's going to be a sunny, mild day where you live, or it's going to uh, predict for you the, the norm for that time of year. How many times have you looked at that? And then uh, the day before uh, you get there, it's completely different uh, because there are better forecast, uh, things to help with that forecast more close to the real time. Same thing goes for road closures on, on a uh, map function. Uh, it'll tell you it's going to take you seven hours to get from this city to that city. But what you can't understand is if there's going to be a major pileup on the, on the highway on the way. Um, so, you know, prediction has its limits. Uh, and really, um, we would take this. This is why we're very fond of the concept I call time zero with this problem officially. An anastomosis can't leak until it's made. And everything you talk about preoperatively is just foreplay to this. But you actually have to endeavor on the problem. Um, that part of the operation, to me, is the what we call the critical portion of the operation. Uh, this is the one where the attending surgeon has to be there and, and has to be part of it for relevance. Um, so this is where it all starts. And it's because at that time, you can size up your field. You know what the gland is like by observation, palpation, um, as opposed to a surrogate preoperative radio, radiographic look. Um, it's, it's authentic at that point. You know the tissue quality. You know the physiologic state of the patient uh, in the midst of the operation. You know what your blood loss is. And you also know the health that you have that day. Who's working with you and what's their skill level and, and how you're going to put this anastomosis together. So I think that you're actually dealing that you're dealing with the actual at that point, and um, you can uh, basically go to the measurable and tangible versus the supposed uh, or surrogate data at that point. And I also think that this is your first opportunity to actually influence um, uh, the situation with your actions. And of course, as surgeons, we feel that we have that power, right? So then my next thoughts would be post-operative assessment is moving towards confirmation or definition that the fistula is happening rather than the than prediction per se. And naturally, as you get closer to the act of a fistula being defined and farther from time zero, you're going to increase your predictive value and accuracy. So the factors that you can roll in post-operatively are valuable and helpful um, but you got to think of them sort of being uh, more about the odometer of the disease. One basic question we grapple with is if you perceive added risk, would you do something different? And if so, what? And we ask that question directly to the masters. And they say that they believe that these scores help. Three-fourths of the people um, so, uh, claim that and that 50% of them calculate them. But truly, they struggle with what to do functionally with that knowledge. And I'm go I hope that as we get into this a little deeper, uh, that I can um, shed some light on that. But uh, that's where we are right now, is people, they, they like the idea of a, of a risk prediction uh, model or tool, but they're not really into how to affect change with it. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the fistula risk score that you developed and have published on? Sure. 
the uh, we'll call that the FRS for simplicity. Uh, it's uh, derived uh, should be you know really set out at the outset here that it was derived from a very rigorous modeling process that used 42 preoperative and intraoperative factors from over 450 Whipples. Um, it was subs has subsequently been validated uh, and across multiple domains and conditions uh, for all forms of pancreatic duodenectomy, including minimally invasive and private practices versus academic and multi-practice processes, et cetera. So it's really um, sort of got the primacy in the field of the fistula risk uh, prediction process. Uh, FRS uh, risk or the FRS score is, as it turns out, the most consistent and important driver of the ultimate outcome of, of CRPOP or clinically relevant uh, fistula. So in other words, that inherent risk as determined by the FRS is there. And as each point of the score accrues, you add an odds ratio of 1.5 to uh, the you know, hazard of a, a fistula happening. So what it does is ultimately it predicts very well morbidity after the operation, overall morbidity, not just officially. The burden of an operation uh, as uh, judged by the uh, post-op morbidity index, um, resource utilization, costs, and it even predicts mortality. The higher you get up on the F, uh, FRS score, the more chance you're going to have of dying. It also aligns with your post-operative day one drain amylase values. So you know what you're going to get the next day already in the operating room if you can if you uh, figure your score out. Uh, there's a stepwise um, uh, increase in your uh, amylase as the FRS goes up. Now, it's, it's, we tried to make it simple along, along the lines. Some of our modeling early on got very complex with big numbers and things that people couldn't remember. But we made it a very simple process, and it basically relies on four components. Gland texture, duct size in millimeters, um, calibrated to millimeters, not a dichotomized thing. Disease pathology broken down into protective and non-protective pathology. Protective is pancreatic cancer and pancreatitis. And then finally, intraoperative blood loss on a scaled basis. You get various weights to these four things to make a 10-point continuously escalating scale as you go across from zero to 10. It's utilitarian and it's easy to remember. Uh, you can do this on, on, your, on your two hands, on the fingers of your two hands and on, on the top of your head. It then we were then were able to delineate it into zones that cluster outcomes pretty relatively. So we have a, the lowest uh, risk group is called negligible and there's a under 1% chance that you develop a fistula in that group and you go up through low risk, to moderate risk to the high risk group that pretty much socks in about a 30 to 35% chance of developing a fistula if you're in the FRS 7 to 10 range. I'll talk about that a little bit more later in, in the talk today. Um, frequency across the zones also has been defined. 10% of your cases are going to be negligible risk or virtually no chance of leaking. Uh, the most common area is the moderate risk at 60% of all cases undertaken. And then this high risk zone is um, infrequent, 
Um, but of course, daunting, and that is a 10% chance of encountering a high-risk uh, scenario. I use the word scenario because we have recently defined uh, the fact that there are 80 distinct ways you can bring these four components and their weight weights together. We call these distinct scenarios, and they are made up of the possible combinations of those four elements. Um, this has uh, been outlined in a uh, paper uh, in the Annals of Surgery last year called the Fistula Risk Catalog, where each of these 80 scenarios is defined and the outcomes from them um, uh, uh, understood. That's absolutely tremendous, Chuck. I, I was wondering if you could just take a second before we move on uh, for our learners in particular, because it might not be totally intuitive. When you look at your, your four components of your FRS um, and look at the underlying pathology um, and you define it as protective, for example, with pancreatitis and with pancreatic adenocarcinoma or pancreatic tumors that are non-neuroendocrine, uh, what's the link with gland texture and, and, and why is that, that particular element so important? Yeah, so um, the protective aspect would really have to do with the effects on the gland and what happens when you have an obstructive pancreatic cancer tumor to the pancreatic duct? This is all about what's going on at the duct where you transect it. Um, and also pancreatitis uh, is about fibrosis. So the dilated duct from the tumor uh, makes it easier sewing, basically, right? And, and the same thing can be said about the fibrosis aspect. Sometimes with pancreatic cancer, you get both of those, obviously. But the fibrosis allows for the sutures to hold better. Uh, turning it into a, a hard gland. Uh, the interesting thing here is that you would assume that those are collinear um, with um, the gland texture. Um, those facts are collinear with the gland texture or the duct size, but they're not, in fact. Uh, and it's hard to understand, but there's definitely situations where you're going to have a pancreatic cancer that does not obstruct the duct um, that way. And this accounts for that fact that... Um, there are going to be cases where just the fact that you have cancer um, or pancreatitis is enough, uh, but you may even have a soft gland or, or a, a tiny duct. I can't explain that, but um, you can understand how conceptually um, those are protective because largely they do affect the uh, gland. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And, you know, I think we all talk to our trainees when we initially frame a Whipple procedure and they come onto our service as, you know, it's a procedure where you have the resectional component and the reconstruction component clearly, and you, you pay for one with the other, meaning if the resection is hard, i.e. pancreatitis, for example, the reconstruction is generally, you know, overall, uh, if you take all comers, it's, it's more straightforward, it's simpler to do, and it's lower risk or vice versa. I, I'd like to move into certainly a more, um, controversial or, or maybe hot topic, and, and that's surgical variance, both in terms of centers and volumes, as well as individual surgeons. How do you think that that plays into the story of, of pancreatic fistula? Clearly, it's not uniformly distributed. Um, uh, how do the outcomes uh, of relevance look, you know, across surgeons, for example? And, I, you know, I, I pick up on a, on a number of the nuances that you sort of tipped your hat to in, in the last segment, which is um, you, you know, the, the experience of sewing that pancreatic jejunostomy or pancreatic gastrostomy for some folks is so critical. Yeah, uh, 
So back to the point you just made, I I couldn't agree with you more about the two faces of the pan, of the Whipple. Uh, and we say the exact same thing. Um, you get you usually get one uh, good side of the operation and one bad side um, or tough or uh, difficult. Uh, and rarely, if ever, do you get both aligned where you have double good or double bad. Um, so uh, fully agree with you. I say the exact same things. So for variance, uh, you know, when I was growing up uh, in this field, I used to consider before I got into all the work that I did, I used to consider that it was a defined biologic fact that it's a 15 percent rate um, of pancreatic fistula, that it was an immutable fact. And uh, while I told you earlier that the average, in fact, is 13 to 15 percent, it was when I was young. It is now that the definition is there as well. Okay. But I actually think it's not a truth that this is a biologically immutable fact. Um, our work, um, I was fascinated by the idea. I was like, what if you work at a cancer center? And this ties back to what we were just talking about. And you're getting all these pancreatic cancers in your practice with dilated ducts and firm glands. Uh, but you're not doing with cysts a lot or something like that. And uh, your, your practice is dominated by what would we would think would be less risky uh, situations. Would you have better fistula rates? So I wanted to sort of look into that. And we did that through the fistula study group. That's really why we could put it together is to be able to look at the, the broad variance. And it truly shows that surgeons and institutions show great variation in risk assumption. So there are people, and it's not, I don't think it's by choice necessarily. It might be, you know, it might be the nature of your practice or not, but there's a huge array of um, the FRS, the median FRSs and the constitution of the risk zones between surgeons. And that actually also applies to institutions in the series as well. Um, similarly, not all surgeons are created equal in terms of CRPOF rates and outcomes. Um, there is a, a great variance. 15% uh, is the norm. I'll tell you if you're humming in the 20% range, you're not doing as well as you think. Um, you shouldn't be up there. Um, and maybe you should be looking at uh, uh, what you're doing and why. There are a few people in the series who, um, largely who didn't have a lot of N or a lot of uh, um, background who were in the 30% range. Similarly, on the other end, there's a handful of people out there who really have this down and are in the three to 5% range. And that master's series paper, actually, we focused in on those people in the world who have a 5% chance or, or less uh, and we focus in on what they're doing so that the reader can actually look at their practices. So it, there is a variance for sure, just like uh, we know. And this is this is the hot stuff in, in our outcomes research now in all of surgery. Um, this can be normalized um, now that we have the score uh, to use as a risk adjustment process. And we've now taken this to uh, the concept of performance assessment uh, for, for Whipples, um, showing that there are definitely people who underperform and overperform 
despite the risk profile that they have. That was an annals of surgery paper uh, by Matt McMillan uh, and really shows a, a nice waterfall plot of both the surgeons and the institutions showing the the good performers, the, you know, the people shooting over par and under par. So, what you know, you, you've obviously now published this paper talking about what the masters do and, and we have their insights. But what do you think are the biggest obstacles to making tangible progress against this dreaded complication? Yeah, well, here, here's the big deal. It's very complex. I mean, this is why the Whipple is the pinnacle operation in surgery. This is why everyone, uh, you know, respects it and admires it and fears it. You know, uh, it's just very complex. There's tons of decision making. Uh, the way I like to put it, I have a slide in some of my talks. It, it's a bunch of gears put together and, you know, there are basically many moving parts going on. And we figured out that, you know, at baseline, there's at least 10 or 11 distinct choices that use the search and can have for putative uh, mitigation techniques. Yeah, you just can't assess one technique in isolation as been as has been the habit historically for this. You know, when you look at studies, um, what is lacking is a more comprehensive assessment of the multiple approaches necessary necessarily employed in concert together. How do they all interact? Which of, what dominates what in those gears um, to get to the final outcome? Uh, what helps you to be more protective or less protective, et cetera? So this conceptually indicates that randomized controlled trials are actually inadequate approaches for this. And while, yes, we have RCTs on ver various mitigation strategies in um, this problem, um, the problem is that they are basically funneled into just one, one mitigation strategy alone in isolation. This is actually where multivariate analysis, propensity score matching might actually be more relevant um, in assessing the, the story because it actually accounts for the interplay of numerous factors together at once. I wanna go backwards again to uh, explore or, or unpack in particular, um, I think the, the term you use is, is time zero, i.e. The, the construction of that pancreatic anastomosis. And as surgeons, you know, we certainly all, I think, fundamentally believe at a, at a high volume capacity that we have the ability, the power, the luck, whatever term you want to use to influence the outcome of that technical endeavor, whether that's a colorectal hookup, uh, like a low rectal hookup, or whether that's a pancreatic hookup. So in, the, in terms of the, the, the anastomosis, the reconstruction, is that really true? Where does the, the tipping point lie between surgeon and disease or surgeon and, and other non um, sort of um, um, self-interested uh, um, factors? Yeah, I'd go with this with a yes answer to that and no. Um, I believe that technique matters but the technique probably doesn't. So you must start with the foundation of a sound anastomotic construction physically. Uh, again, time zero, you're making it. This is when it starts, okay? The master's series uh, indicates that they're unanimous about this. They fully believe that the surgeon uh, has power, has the power to do this well. And they believe that good surgeons do well and, and bad surgeons don't, so to speak, okay? Now, the manner of placement, the type, 
and the caliber of the stitches probably doesn't matter. Uh, there's actually been very little studied on this. Um, uh, but I'll, I'll also uh, temper that uh, by saying don't use cat gut uh, as uh, they figured out at the beginning um, because of the enzymatic uh, degradation issues. But um, other than that, you know, what caliber you use and what type, um, that's not really going to uh, make an anastomosis keep uh, together uh, better than another one. Um, but how well you place them and tie your sutures is probably does matter. And the bigger risk you have with the gland, it's the most important thing. The pancreas requires a great deal of respect. Um, you know, one of the things I, I try to teach my residents is um, – you have to have fine motor skill on this. Uh, uh, there's a very uh, real tendency when you're tying these uh, fine sutures to bob up and down with your hands. And you can just see the the pole of the, the suture pulling up, pulling up and ripping against it. You can't do that on a fragile gland. Same thing on, you know, like tying a portal vein, so to speak. Okay. So we all know that you got to respect the, the tissue. The, the technique papers, uh, they're, they're, they're out there a dime a dozen uh, in the literature. Uh, and so many are, are, have been scuttled at the review stage because they're not, they're not good. They're generally poorly designed and underpowered. It's usually one surgeon's idiosyncratic technique. Um, it's usually reviewed retrospectively and has a limited end where they're looking at like 50 cases and trying to tell you what a fistula rate is, is um, that has changed in that uh, case. You know, that's ridiculous. Um, no study accounts for all the moving parts I've mentioned earlier. It's generally about one feature of the anastomosis in isolation alone. The randomized controlled trials cannot account for these variations since randomization is to one facet or another. And furthermore, Virtually none have been risk-adjusted, save for the, the recent Verona study and JAMA surgery on high-risk glands uh, and stent use. So uh, let me emphasize some emerging evidence um, by Max Trudeau uh, in the Annals of Surgery um, last year about the importance of limiting blood loss. Um, there's a reason it is a signature element to the official risk score. Um, you can decrease rates by up to 20% overall and 50% in the high risk zone if you knock down FRS points um, attributed to blood loss, the three points of that scale. If you were able to eliminate that down and get your blood loss under 400, um, in hypothetically, in theory, you'd be knocking down your fistula rates. And uh, secondly, um, there seems to be potentiation of vulnerable or what we call charged up glands, um, those being soft glands with the small ducts. When you add blood loss on top of them, uh, you get worse outcomes because of it. And you can even get fistulas in a protected gland. Um, uh, they will leak when you have the setting of considerable blood loss. So um, a lot of our work recently has gotten into uh, that as uh, one of the uh, main influencers uh, at the time of your anastomotic construction. Yeah, be beautifully summarized. You know, it makes me think of a, of a couple of papers that, that I was lucky enough to be involved in that sort of highlight your, your, your comments. The first was a, a, a review that uh, John Cameron had asked Tom Howard, you know, the great Tom Howard that I think is a, a yep. mentor both, both clinically and non-clinically to you and I. 
um, to write about pancreatic anastomosis. And I, I did that as a, as a fellow when I, I, I went back and I read just over a thousand technical reconstruction papers going back, as you know, over a hundred years. And what it became uh, very, very uh, evident very quickly was that you're right, the, the specific technique didn't matter, but the, the, the attention to detail, the technical nuance, the foundational surgical principles, I think that we try and teach folks that rotate onto our service at the chief resident level, as well as our, our fellows, of course, before they move out into practice, are, are critical. You know, using the curve of the needle, um, uh, just as, as one example, um, critical. And I, I also remember, you know, Henry Pitt and I published in HPB a, a paper uh, using the initial sort of round of NISQIP data on, you know, a, as you know, blood loss and Whipple procedures. And I remember the experience of presenting that at the International um um, I remember it. it. Yeah. And, and it was funny because you asked a great question, but my sense in talking to people after that presentation was that a lot of people hadn't really bought into the idea that blood loss was relevant or significant at that point. And it's amazing to see how you and your, your group have taken that to where it is today, really emphasizing that that initial signal was in fact correct. Like it's a, it's an amazing yeah. voyage for sure. Yeah. And it, and it makes sense, right? It makes sense biologically and it makes sense technically you know we've been, the, we, we've been criticized uh, uh, a little bit about that because uh, in some of the the reviews of our work because people say that uh, of course every surgeon has that as a tenant that they don't want to lose mm -hmm. blood uh, that it's a sort of a naturally built into us you know no surgeon is out there uh, bloodletting basically but it, that's true but uh, very few um, I I think go to the level of actively trying to prevent blood loss and mm -hmm. do the things necessary to minimize it um, with the way they dissect, the way they approach things, et cetera. Yeah, I, obviously I'm, I'm biased, but I, I couldn't agree more. And you know, the, the technical part of it is interesting to really think of at a, at a 30,000 foot level. You know, in, in, in Calgary, and I think probably a lot of places, we talk a lot about with the residents you know, if you're on a colorectal rotation or you're in a general surgery rotation and you're sewing bowel to bowel, that's sort of a soft, mobile, flexible structure to another soft, mobile, flexible structure. That is technically, motor memory-wise, mechanically very different than sewing a flexible structure to a relatively fixed structure. So True. bowel to pancreas, bowel to bile duct, bowel to liver. Those are such different skill sets that you really don't learn in a general surgery residency nor nor do you really need and i think those those foundational uh, almost how do you sew soft things like cardiac muscle like pancreas um really do play into the underlying message of, of what you're talking about if we move on a little bit i i wanted you to just briefly touch on the absolute dizzying um myriad <laughs> of mit of mitigation strategies beyond what we've talked about uh, in terms of reducing pancreatic fistulas, whether that's pharmacologically or, you know, uh, ERAS-wise or or drainage, uh, any of those topics. What's your overall summary of of the bells and whistles, so to speak? Yeah. So, um, it, in general, our work uh, through last decade, uh, looking at these with risk-adjusted analyses, finally, uh, has tempered the enthusiasm for the bells and whistles. Um, uh, and in my career, I have stripped these things down for sure. Uh, these were shiny objects when I was a fellow and a resident. And, oh, yeah, look at all the things you can do. But 
I'll quickly summarize our findings um, uh, of over about 10 papers or so. First and foremost, there's an incredible variation across the world in the application of these strategies. Uh, Matt McMillan's HPB paper was a survey of practice around the world, really defines what people are doing and, and why, and it has regional variation. Um, this is probably propagated more by local habits and training paradigms and influences rather than the best evidence available in the literature. Sometimes it's about where the papers are derived from. There seems to be regional proclivities uh, to doing strategies based on where the strategy has been studied the most. And a lot of times I think your habits are basically by what the professor told you to do when you trained. Um, so I'd like to introduce to you some some thoughts that are a little bit more ubiquitous rather than than you know what you learned in your fellowship. So in general, the first and foremost thing is is PG versus PJ. It's controversial. Um, the idea would be that pancreatic gastrostomy would be a protective thing in general, but the literature absolutely over time studied through RCTs, et cetera, uh, certainly doesn't show that PG is better. Okay, so um, it's barely applied actually internationally. And um, our work at the risk adjusted level would actually tend to suggest that PG does worse, uh, particularly in the higher risk um, uh, cases that you think it would do better. Uh, there's been a lot of energy about PG, you know, over time for something that's really not as relevant uh, in real day practice is what I'm trying to say. Um, dunking and invaginating is not superior to ductimucosal. There's very, there's uh, competing RCTs on this. Our work has shown that even in the trickiest glandular scenarios of small ducts and soft glands, um, there's no uh, improvement uh, in doing a dunking and vaginating over a ductimucosa. Um, there are times for doing them, but and I'll talk about that later, but um, this is not the best way necessarily, right? Um, We've found that selective drain placement um, uh, probably uh, is uh, is safe and uh, equivalent uh, to uh, using drains in every case. Uh, more drains are not better. So we have a new paper uh, in review right now that shows that uh, putting two versus one does not improve uh, outcomes. And the drain type that you use is not influential whether it be a closed suction or, or um, uh, uh, gravity type of thing. Uh, we're very uh, strong on um, indicating that uh, internal stents are not uh, good. They're generally detrimental. Um, they are not valuable in decreasing fistula rates and they can have uh, other uh, collateral problems associated with them. In terms of external stents, there's a, probably a limited value to them. It's certainly not useful across all risk zones. You can understand putting an external stent in a nine millimeter duct that's an FRS zero is not gonna help you in any way, shape or form. Um, our work has shown uh, that you need to actually look at the aggregate risk profile, not just one risk factor in, in isolation like small duct or soft gland. You, uh, and our work has shown that the high risk group is the area that uh, derives value from external stents, whereas not so much on the rest of the risk profile. 
Um, a very big point that that I'm I'm vocal about, um, and it's very controversial, is the uh, avoidance of somatostatin analogs. Um, by using the FRS, we were actually able to do for the first time a risk-adjusted analysis of this, and it actually shows that um, octreotide uh, shows more harm than good. The odds ratio for the official development is constantly between two and four uh, when octreotide is used. Uh, and that has been consistent as we've grown our series from 1,000 to 8,000 cases. I think the use of sealants are useless. Uh, it's generally a Hail Mary in a case. Um, I did it a couple times early in my career. They broke down anyway. They're just not good. Uh, they're not the, the sort of strength of glue that you think that they are uh, for a, an enzymatically charged um, anastomosis. Um, there's an idea of using rue limbs uh, to divest the pancreatic biliary secretions. There's really no substantial data that would uh, show that that is an improvement or um, valuable. And then finally, I'd say patches are anecdotal. Um, they're uh, probably, they may have some value. They're often applied to prevent gastroduodenal artery stump bleeding. Um, it's very common in the um, Eastern um, uh, uh, hemisphere, uh, but uh, there's really nothing that says wrapping a um, anastomosis in omentum or something like that is going to protect you. That's a, that's a beautiful summary. You know, you know, I will push back a little bit about the the internal pancreatic duct stents and just sort of nuance that out a little bit and say that sure. you know, in that one to two mil duct that you're that you're sewing in, it is a helpful mechanical tool for the actual hookup. Um, whether you leave it there or not, I think more is more reflective of, of what you're referring to. Uh, yes. You know, leaving leaving it in place is certainly not not helpful, and it's been shown as as you uh, and others have, have pointed out. But there is a a it can be a mechanical help just to use as a as a bit of a deep guide. Uh, there's no doubt. Let 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 me make you take us into the operating room then, and and ask you. It, you, you know, you're you're doing a Whipple today. Uh, you're all charged up. You're ready to go. Your 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 team's electric, uh, so to speak. How do you actually? integrate the FRS into practical, informative decision-making in the, in the OR? Sure. Um, so yes, we use it in the operating room. Uh, for me, it's on the top of my head. Uh, I'm just, I've lived this for a decade. So it, it's easy. And that's because it's easy to use. I mean, anyone can get to that point. But um, we, uh, for my partners and such, we put a cheat sheet up on the wall. So the FRS uh, scale thing is there. Um, and uh, look out in the future because our next endeavor is we are creating a web-based um, and uh, app um, uh, device uh, app uh, coming later this year that you can use right at your fingertips to figure this out um, down the line. Um, so it's there, you know, in our face in the operating room to calculate and then um, uh, adapt to. Um, in every operative note. I put a paragraph, I say, you know, we put the pancreas together in this fashion, blah, blah, blah. And then it is, uh, today's specifications for the pancreas were a uh, soft gland, a duct that's two millimeters in size, um, uh, pancreatic um, uh, neuroendocrine tumor as the uh, diagnosis, and a blood loss of um, uh, 400 cc's. Therefore, the fistula risk score is um, seven. Uh, and this makes it a high-risk case. Accordingly, we applied the following uh, mitigation strategies. Boom, 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 boom. Um, 
So that's there for research purposes. I can look back at every case and say, here's what I did and here's that we knew where the state of the um, situation was at the point of the anastomosis. Uh, furthermore, we've developed a basic playbook um, uh, in some of our papers that's uh, applicable to the relative specificity you may wish to key on. It could be the FRS number, it could be the FRS zone that the case is in, or it could be the distinct scenario. And from those, we can play out and tell you best mitigation strategies for that um, scenario available. Dr. Vollmer, I wanted to circle back here to something that you were talking about earlier, and and uh, that is that whole idea of very high risk situations. You talked about um, low risk uh, and moderate risk, and then very high risk situations. Can you first talk about, about a little bit about what those high risk situations are? I think you, you've alluded to them in terms of the soft gland and small duct, but can you elucidate that a little bit more? And then uh, how do you think um, those types of situations should be approached? Yeah, so these, you know, are particularly harrowing, um, even to the most seasoned pancreatic surgeons. Um, these can now be explicitly identified through using the Fischler risk score. There are 20 distinct scenarios. So that's one fourth of all the combinations possible but they account for just 10% of all the cases in terms of frequency. So each is rare, but bad. Um, thus, they are high stakes situations. Uh, essentially, we've been able to identify an optimal mitigation bundle, uh, as we put it, um, that includes the following combination, pancreatic ojejunostomy rather than PG, stent use, external stent, that would be, um, uh, placement of a drain because of the severe risk, uh, and uh, obviation or not using octreotide or somatostatin agents. We took, we could show that if you took it from using all the counter arguments to those, um, it would be like a 30 to 50% chance of leaking. If you use this particular bundle, it takes it down to 13%, even in the high-risk zone, okay? So that's about a third of an impact for you, or two-thirds impact. Um, there's a multi-faceted, you need to have a multifaceted toolkit for anastomotic recon, uh, for creation. Uh, you need to know the gambit of options, and this is only coming really upon me in the last 10 years of my career, now 20 years into my career, okay? So after uh, riding the horse for quite a while, now I'm sort of seeing the understanding. I've seen enough cases to understand the value of this. You need to try out these different anastomotic approaches to the PJ, uh, not just the traditional Cattell Warren, not just the Bloom Guard. You got to be able to do both. You got to be able to do the way Whipple did initially, just putting a single layer together. You need to be able to dunk sometimes, sometimes two layers, sometimes one. Um, you have to try them out. Too often, people are paralyzed with fear of something that we haven't done yet. And when you get humming in your career and you're on the horse, you just don't want to get off of something that's a little uncomfortable. You need to do that as you mature in your pancreatic surgical career, because there are going to be times when a certain morphology of the gland demands a, a, a certain um, uh, attachment uh, approach. I'm getting more adaptable the older I get with that. And clearly listening to you and, and Dr. Ball talk about this, it's obvious to me that 
this is not for the occasional dabbler in, in Whipple surgery. This is something that you need to be immersed in day in and day out. As you said, there's so many moving parts and so many uh, factors that you really have to take into account. So to me, it seems obvious that that volume is going to have an impact on outcome. But can you enlighten us a little bit on the data around surgical experience and fistula development and and uh, what that data shows? Yeah, sure. This is uh, our latest work, actually. It was just published in surgery about a month ago uh, by um, Fabio Cassiani from Verona. Um, so essentially, what it, we focused in on the high-risk cases, and there are something like 850 of these in our series, um, thinking that this is, you know, where you need to have the best uh, proficiency, right? And it did, and it truly uh, did delineate an experience factor. Um, those uh, surgeons who had done over 400 case Whipples, um, uh, or had uh, 20 years experience or more. Um, did better. Uh, and I think the odds ratio was like 0.52. So you're uh, doing twice as well um, if you have that uh, career profile. And what we also found about this is that these surgeons tend to use better mitigation strategy profiles. Um, so there, there's something about that not only do they have a skill set that's more refined maybe, but also uh, they tend to use the better package um, is their concept, their construct for it. We're actually going to have forthcoming data um, that shows this process um, correlates also to the full spectrum of risk. So that experience um, is this would be a paper that shows the most um, uh, law, uh, discrete paper to show that experience matters in pancreatic oduodenectomy. Uh, for not just fistula outcomes, but all outcomes that you care about. Um, and finally, I'd say that this, you know, what's the take home from this is that less experienced surgeons starting their career, not, not quite to that glorious 400 case level, um, may benefit from uh, relying on their partners uh, or uh, getting true intraoperative collaboration. Uh, you know, there's, there's papers out there, there's places in the world where there are two surgeon Whipples. Um, people coming in just to do the reconstruction aspects, sort of like being called from the bullpen in, in uh, baseball. Um, so that idea is out there. Uh, and also you can look at some of this work if you're younger and, and think about adopting the best practices that we've um, been able to delineate. I love, I love the fact that you just brought a, a sports analogy into that. I think it's, it's quite apt. Um, you know, we're getting close to the end here, uh, Chuck, and, and you provided us with such an amazing um, a comprehensive masterclass. But I do want to take a, a little bit of a sidebar here and, and make you talk about your analysis of surgery paper commentary called a fistula in football. And I, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but, you know, I was lucky enough and obviously because of my bias to, to review that for the annals of surgery. And it's one of the my favorite pieces I've ever read. Could you, could you walk us through that analogy between pancreatic surgery and fistula in particular and, and American, i.e. sort of NFL football? Yeah, well, well thanks, Chad, for accepting it. <laughs> I didn't know that, but that's um, uh, great. Um, yeah, I really like this paper. It's, it's basically it provides a philosophical analogy to um, a competitive sport. Um, uh, it basically shows an uncanny association with the kicking game in American football. In other words, fistula rates 
um, uh, uh, correlate to field goal rates um, in the NFL. Uh, and it's identical. The numbers are identical across um, the uh, zones of risk uh, assumption. Um, the paper also emphasizes situational adaptation. You got to know the field, the weather, the conditions, your adversary's traits. You have to know the risk assumption calculus. And we make a, a point of emphasizing, you know, what Bill Belichick does with this and in terms of adapting his game plan every game to what he's facing. So I feel that's what you have to do in the operating room for this problem. You know, it's about the, the hash where you are in the hash marks on the field, the wind conditions, uh, how sloppy is your plant foot, et cetera. You know, the same thing happens for what you can size up in your field, the operation. Um, to make it pretty simple, you know, low risk situations should be automatic. So a point after attempt in football is like a 99% chance of being made. Uh, negligible risk in um, uh, pancreas surgery is a 99 plus percent chance of not leaking, et cetera. For moderate risk, you get up into the concept of using accuracy. You're gonna have to be more precise with what you do. In those low, low risk situations, you know, it's like sort of shooting on a goal without a goalie there. You, you really can't miss, right? Uh, you could go be blindfolded and probably, you know, hit the goal. But moderate risk, you're going to actually have to have a skill set of accuracy. And then high risk kind of is, do you actually have the leg uh, to make a 50-yard field goal? Do you have a skill level for that? And that's probably where we get into this, uh, what we just talked about with the experience thing. Um, what the paper does is it, you know, it underscores the impact of specialization to improvement of outcomes, both at, in the football level with specialized kickers, uh, practicing every day, day after day, what they do, and only that. Uh, and for us, uh, the specialization of um, pancreatic surgeons alone. Yeah, I, I, that's a that's a must read to anyone who's interested in this topic. There's no doubt. Chuck, before we end with a bit of a discussion on post-operative period care and, and maybe a summary, I, yep. I was wondering if you could just very quickly, um, you know, again, despite us sort of dancing around it and sprinkling this conversation with the evidence of it, I, I wondered if you could talk to us and summarize the, the FRS catalog paper that was published last year in Annals, because it, it really is sort of a, um, a penultimate, uh, a quite beautiful summary of a lot of what we've talked about. Yeah, thanks a lot. Um, probably the paper I'm, I'm most proud of because it's the, it is it's the pinnacle of all the work that went into it to this point. So you know I, I consider this to be um, a precision medicine for the surgeon. I mean, let's not just leave this to the chemotherapy world. Um, you want to attack uh, every case uh, for the variables that are unique to that uh, case or that patient. Okay. So what we found from this is that the frequency of occurrence of these various scenarios is inversely related to severity. So you're actually more likely to encounter low risk cases in your practice than you are high risk. Uh, and in fact, the most common scenario is FRS zero. That's the one that can't leak basically. It's a 0.5% chance of a leak. Um, that happens 10% of all the cases. It's the single highest frequency uh, scenario. So you're more likely than on any given day to go in the operating room and encounter a case that can't leak and won't be a problem 
than you are otherwise. So uh, what we also got from that paper is that we're able to sort of hone down into the 10 most impactful scenarios. This would be a combination of both the frequency and the severity of that particular uh, risk uh, combination. Um, these 10 uh, most impactful groups account for 36% of the frequency of cases and half of all the fistulas. And we would argue that if you want to make pay on improving this problem, you got to go figure out how to deal with those situations uh, because they will have the biggest impact on changing your numbers. Um, ultimately, uh, this gets to the balance of standardization versus specialization in surgery um, uh, or uniqueness, I should say. And I think this there is a uh, the master's paper will say that there is a very big tension in our field uh, between the people who say you've got to just figure out what you do and do it repetitively and do it all the time that way. And that's what makes you excellent in a master versus the others who would say there's nuance to things and uh, a real uh, expert is going to be able to. Um, understand, size things up, and be adaptable for any given case with a full tool set to be used. I would be on that second, um, group, among the second group uh, of that. But there's a big tension in the pancreas surgery world about that question. I love that description of that tension. It's, it's really something that we're, I think, in particular in the HPV world, obviously, but uh, surgeons everywhere are are struggling with so I really love that uh, description of that tension and talking about you know variation or standardization one of the fun things to do is to, to go on Twitter and and get uh, HPV surgeons talking about how they manage patients uh, post-operatively when do they check drain amylase all these kinds of things can you talk to us a bit about uh, post-operative approaches what works and what doesn't yeah um, I'll, I'll be brief because I know we're running a little long here but um that master's paper really dives into this heavily. Uh, and there's so much rich information about it uh, regarding um, how people use the amylase thing. But in general, a couple of thoughts. Early drain removal within three to four days is valuable. Uh, this is RCT-based uh, proof. Uh, the Bassi paper from Verona was really important in this, but it holds up. Uh, it's hard to explain this mechanistically, however. Um, you know, why is it that uh, if you take a drain out earlier, it's better, but if you leave it longer, it's worse. But the RCT really shows that it's true. Drain amylase assessment, you should consider to be the odometer of the problem. Um, it helps you understand how the ride's going after the operation. Um, as far as using that, there's a tension here also between using positive predictive values and negative predictive values. Um, when you're using the amylase uh, concept. A negative predictive value is going to give you the certainty that you're not going to leak. And to me, that's really the more important zone. So far, our data has been more centered on positive predictive value, saying that if you had a level, it would be indicative that a leak is going to happen. But in terms of determining if you're going to take a drain out or not, you're going to want to know with good certainty if you're not going to leak if you do that. So I would say that the, the push is going towards a negative predictive value concept. We've melded this into a dynamic drain management process. This uh, includes the FRS principle in the operating room. 
preventing um, drain placement for a full third of the patients for which it won't help and then using stepwise drain fluid and analysis thereafter. And we've pushed this along in a couple of papers, most recently in uh, Journal of American College of Surgeons last year. Our most recent thoughts on this is about the kinetics of the drain management afterwards. And this has just been accepted in surgery, be published in the next month or so, um, where we're actually um, trying to uh, show that um, it's a story in evolution afterwards. You can't look at just one day of drain amylase and know where you stand. Um, it's going to be very helpful for you to know if that number is going up, down, or in between. And we have a nice analysis of what those kinetics mean. In other words, use your real-time data to your value. Um, the master's series also values the characteristics of drain output more than volume. Uh, what does it look like drives the decision-making rather than the, the amount of fluid coming out. And I would tell you also that the masters are generally cautious regarding drain management. They think of it as a security blanket for the most part. Um, another thing I would, uh, again, emphasize from my belief on this is that uh, avoid statin analogs in the post-operative period. Um, as we've intimated before. And I'll tell you that if you want to use that for therapeutics, you're usually using it too late. And I really don't think there's really strong data out there that says uh, putting uh, octreotide on to, to dry up a fistula really works. Finally, I'll say nutrition support in the postoperative period has very little proven value yet, uh, but it could certainly be explored better. If you have a real and clinically impactful uh, pancreatic leak, what do you do in that post-operative setting? Sure. You know, this gets down to, you know, how do you treat patients, basically. So um, I think that uh, the things that come through is you need to respect this entirely. So you need to not be cavalier with these patients. Manage them uh, to the hilt. Um, uh, transfer them to the ICU uh, higher acuity settings uh, when a patient starts to fall off the cliff. Don't waste the uh, waste hours on that. The masters are very, very strong about it. It's almost unanimous that uh, you have to put these people in the ICU. Um, what's really come around, and we, I think we've taken a big lead from necrotizing pancreatitis care, is um, that the percutaneous approaches are preferred. Uh, and that you need to maximize your drainage process to keep people from, from getting very um, ill or dying, so to speak. Um, this is the difference between what I started out with, with the killing fields. In those cases, those patients had open bellies. Uh, you know, all the humors were coming out because of the multiple re-operations, et cetera. Uh, now, um, a patient uh, is spared all that because of percutaneous aspects. Um, not all collections can be drained. And you need to know that. And nor do all collections need to be drained. You don't have to go into overdrive with this if a patient isn't that sick. Antibiotics alone may suffice in certain uh, scenarios, just like we learned in necrotizing pancreatitis. My biggest take home for this is let the body catch up to the healing. Um, almost all the time, the body will seal and heal a fistula. Almost all the time. Uh, it just takes time. On the other hand, there's a the balance. You don't want to be keeping drains in for two to three months. When they do, they fistulize externally. So there's a, you know, a, a good zone there. But almost always when you remove your drains, that body is going to seal it up and patch it up and you're not going to have intra-abdominal leaking.
And I think the last point here is, what do you do when that patient is an extremist? What we call the grade C leak, you know, when it's basically uh, a full dehiscence of the anastomosis. And you can see this radiographically and your, your patient is tanking. Um, it's a tough scenario uh, and it's not well optimized in the literature because it's infrequent. I mean, there's no way we're ever going to have a study that's going to um, optimize the, you know, the best approach. But the first and foremost concept is avoid a reconstruction attempt in that setting, in the, in the, se in the septic uh, abdomen like that. You're going to fail. It failed the first time. It's no better when you go back in. The second thing is um, what, what could you do otherwise? Um, actually, a completion pancreatectomy is favored by most of the masters at 30% of the time. However, an almost equivalent number uh, fully avoid doing such a thing. And with its attendant physiologic downfall, you also have to understand that doing a completion pancreatectomy can harbor as high as a 50% mortality rate from that reoperation. The other alternatives for you are uh, wide drainage or stenting processes, either a bridge stent uh, approach that we've popularized into the bowel or just a pure external external worsenostomy, uh, worsening ostomy um, uh, drainage externally and live to fight another day on that. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.